Hey everyone, uh, it's my opportunity this week to bring the message for you this weekend. And we're going to be continuing in the book of James. Uh, if you've been following along with us, you know that we have now gone through the first four chapters of the book of James. And now we enter chapter 5. Uh, and as we get to chapter 5, we're going to see that the theme that James has developed throughout the book is going to continue even uh, into this chapter. Uh, and it is going to be a little bit of a different type of tone that James is going to take here in chapter 5, and I'll explain that in just a moment. Um, and we're going to give you a little bit of a review. If you haven't been with us for James, or if you have, just to remember that James uh, is primarily about how we respond to trials, uh, how we respond to the test of trials in our life. And as many of you know and understand, we've been going through one of those trials right now. And so as we've been going through James, we've looked at several different ways that, that God says this is the way that you should handle trials, to have joy and to find wisdom even in the hardest of times. Um, and that has been the theme, and that will continue to be the theme uh, as we go even on from here. One of the things that in the whole of the book, another theme that comes out in addition to this idea of how do we face trials is this uh, understanding that we need to make sure that we are not living uh, in uh, a double-minded life, a double-minded way to be two-souled, to be two-faced, but to trust Jesus through any trial, not to trust other things, not to fall uh, too far and going one direction and, or saying that we're trusting in Jesus and then doing something completely different. And so we've, that's one other theme that has come out. And then if you were able to have watched last week's uh, as we were finishing up chapter 4, uh, Justin did a phenomenal job as he brought this idea out of God's sovereignty and how we need to humbly trust in God's sovereignty during our trials uh, and not trust in our own plans, not trust in our own thinking, or try to manufacture God's will in our own life, but instead to trust in His sovereignty and in His sovereignty alone. And so that's kind of where we've been. Uh, if you want any more information about how we got there, all these different things we've talked about, there's all the sermons uh, are posted on our website for you to see. So today we are going to be entering uh, chapter 5. And in just a moment, I'm going to show you how chapter 4 transitions into chapter 5 pretty, pretty seamlessly. But before we get there, would you join me as we open with a word of prayer? Lord, I want to thank you for this time that we have to look to your word. I want to thank you for the admonition that we've been given here in the book of James on how we should respond to trials in a joyful way as we look for wisdom from you. I pray that as we continue to read and as we continue to study what James has to say here specifically in chapter 5, that you would open our minds and our eyes to see what you would have for us to see so that we could change whatever you would have for us to change and uh, live in a way that seeks wisdom and joy in the face of our trials. So God, I pray that you would help us to see that today as we Look to your word, and I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I said, chapter 4 ended with this idea of trusting in God's sovereignty, uh, that we must shun arrogant attitudes and think that we are somehow in control of our lives. We need to run away from that. We need to shun that. We need to realize that God is in control. And then we also need to understand that our lives on this earth are nothing more than just a vapor. They're here for a moment, and then they're gone. Really, in the grand scheme of eternity, our lives are uh, very, very small and really very insignificant in a lot of ways. And the point is, we shouldn't worry about planning for this life because it's just a vapor that'll fade away. Those two thoughts are actually going to propel us into chapter 5 
Uh, in chapter 5, James is going to change and he's going to talk to a certain group of people and he's going to start talking about riches. He's going to start talking about wealth. He's going to start talking about money and how we handle finances. And I think it's fair to say that many times the way we seek to control our lives and to maybe rebel against God's sovereignty sometimes is to trust in riches, to trust in money or finances and to hope that maybe our financial well-being will get us through. And that is as James just talked about in chapter 4, an arrogant way of looking at life. We're not trusting in God's will, but we're trusting in the dollar bill. And that's not something we should trust in. And I think James is going to just launch into that here in chapter 5 in a moment. And we're going to look at this idea of money and how it relates to uh, a relationship with God and how it relates to the world we live in. Uh, And so we will be there in just... A moment, and you've seen now. By now, you've seen that the title of this sermon is uh, "Riches to Rags." Uh, many of you have probably heard stories or watched movies of the uh, classic "Rags to Riches" story. And if you know what a "Rags to Riches" story is, it's basically somebody that starts out their life with absolutely nothing—no hope, no means, no money—and uh, it just seems that they are desperate, destitute, and hopeless. But then through whatever events might transpire, maybe they win the lottery or maybe they get an inheritance or maybe they work really hard to build themselves up to a place where they now have uh, treasure, they have riches, they have uh, financial security that they never had before. And many times we're drawn to these type of, uh, of stories because it's a story of the American dream, starting out with nothing and then ending up with everything. And we can get caught up in that dream and we can get caught up in that story uh, and we can think about how good that is, how good it is to watch people being able to go from the bottom to the top, to go from rags to riches, and how great that is, and how a heartwarming story that might be, and how we might even enjoy that in a movie or in a story. But I think God, in today's passage, is going to show us that uh, we're going to turn that around and say that the good thing of rags to riches can easily become a bad thing, can easily become a destructive thing, and can take us from riches to rags. That our riches are nothing more than just dirty rags. And James is going to use even that uh, type of, of, uh, of verbiage and, and words as he talks about money. Uh, this idea that riches are nothing more than rags in the light of eternity. And so that's why we're calling this riches to rags instead of rags to riches. Uh, you might want to remember then that this that riches don't always end up in in a good way, and usually, many times that riches can lead towards rags. They can lead to lead the opposite direction of the American dream. I'm reminded of a story that I came across this week of Curtis Sharp Jr. Uh, maybe you've heard of Curtis Sharp's name. Uh, Curtis was one of the ones uh, in I think the 80s uh, that won five million dollars in the lottery. Um, and as I read the story of Curtis Sharp and how things transpired, he won all this money. And from the very beginning, this just looked a little shady. He won the money. It was a total lucky thing that he won the lottery. He almost never played the lottery. It was like the fifth time he had played and he won all of this money and he was ecstatic of course. But when he goes to even pick up the checks, uh, at the time he had, he was married to one woman, but was having an affair with another woman. And he brought both of them with him when he went to collect his first checks for the lottery winnings. So that was some pretty bad foreshadowing as it went, as his life continued on, uh, he, he used his money in lots of frivolous ways. 
He bought big mansions. He bought things for his, uh, his ex-wife and now his now wife that his, was his mistress. Uh, he made sure that he paid all his friends what they wanted. He gave, gave out his money to his friends when they asked. Uh, and he lived a lavish lifestyle. He became very famous uh, in the time after he won this $5 million that uh, he was so famous that he was one of the richest men uh, in America at the time. And that's how he lived his life. And I don't know how long it took, but over the course of about 10 years, uh, all of that money, that $5 million that he won in the lottery, it should have given him all the happiness in the world. But after only a short time, all that money was gone. He had lost uh, his, his new wife. He had lost uh, relationships. He was destitute and poor and had nothing to live on anymore. And the thing about this story is if you listen to him, if you look him up online, you'll see some articles that were written about him. Uh, the good part about this story is actually Curtis Sharp ends up coming to know Jesus as a result of losing all of his riches. And he comes to know Jesus and he actually becomes a minister in a Baptist church. Now, I don't know all the details about where his, where his soul is with how he understands his life with Jesus but he has come out to tell people that riches destroyed his life and riches did nothing for him. And the only thing that gave him real hope was when he finally found God as he came to know Jesus Christ. Now that's interesting that somebody who won everything, everything the world says will make you happy, actually ended up making him miserable. He misused his money. And for him, God be the glory that God reached out to him and he was able to submit himself to Jesus and see that that's where real life comes from. And I think those type of stories should be a cautionary tale for us. So many of us think that money is where our happiness might lie or our security. But we don't have any promise of tomorrow and we don't have any promise of financial security. But we do have a promise that Jesus is with us. And so that's what we need to cling to. Now, obviously, what we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about money, we're going to talk about wealth. I want to just start off by saying, I am not saying today that if you are watching this video and you find yourself blessed by God and to a place where you actually have financial wealth or financial security, that somehow you are a bad person. Uh, being wealthy isn't always bad. Being wealthy and having good things that God has given, even having riches and wealth, in and of itself is not a sinful, bad lifestyle. But the way we use our money and the way we view our money those are the things that we need to focus on as we think about how we relate to money and versus how we relate to God as we submit to his sovereignty. And so why don't we go ahead and read the passage this morning that we find ourselves in. It's in James chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses, five, or verses 1 through verse 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded. And their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in, the, in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. As I said, this passage, James changes uh, <clears throat> in his way of speaking. His tone changes. If you can't tell just by those words, this is a, it, taken alone, these words can be very, very disheartening. 
James calls out the rich and he says they need to weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon them. And so the main idea we're going to see from these six verses is this. God will judge the rich, so don't be like them. God will judge the rich, so don't be like them. And in order to say that, I need to define who are the rich. Who is it that James means when he says, come now, you rich? Who is he talking to? Is he just talking to anybody who might have money? Because, you know, economics will tell you that many of us living in America are among the richest 10% in the world. So does that mean that we are rich and that we are going to be judged by God? Or does James have a different idea of who he's referring to when he talks about the rich? Well, I think it's pretty clear what James is actually talking about as we take the whole of Scripture. Because in a moment at the end of our time today, we're going to look at the fact that the Scripture doesn't say that wealth and money itself is bad. But it's the love of money. It's the love of wealth. That is what is a problem. So when James is talking about being judged, uh, the rich people being judged, he's talking about those people who have put their trust in money, their love in money. I think we can go back to what we just saw in chapter 4. It's the same group of people that are starting to look at their financial security as the way that they can control their lives. And so they've fallen in love with money, and they're, they are trusting in money over Jesus. And most likely, and I would say almost every commentator agrees, that the people that James writes to here are not Christians who have money or Christians who struggle with money. But actually, James is talking to unbelievers the rich of the world that are oppressing the poor, that are unbelievers, and therefore he is going to call out judgment upon them. It's the unbelievers who have put their faith, their hope, and their love in wealth and not in Jesus. Now notice here that part of the reason we come to this conclusion is he addresses the rich, but he doesn't call them brothers or brothers and sisters. He doesn't call them beloved or any of those type of terms that he would have used in other passages when he's referring to the Christian church. He doesn't call them brothers. He doesn't call them as part of the body of Christ. And they also, in this passage, are never called to repent, which is a very interesting concept. In every other passage where James tells us the way that we do things wrong and how we react to trials in a wrong way, he gives people the opportunity and says, you need to repent from these things. And to a Christian who is struggling with some of these, we do need to repent, turn away from our sin, and turn towards Jesus. But here, James doesn't talk about them being brothers, doesn't talk about how they need to repent. So it goes to understand that he is talking directly to rich unbelievers who are oppressing other people and who are oppressing uh, Christians and are oppressing poor people. So then the question has to come, well, why would James be writing to these type of people? This letter wasn't written to those people. This letter wasn't written to go to everyone in all the world. This was written to go to Christians who have been scattered abroad. It's to the Christian church. So why would James talk to rich unbelievers that wouldn't be part of church if he's writing a letter to the church? And that might seem a little confusing, but actually what I believe we see uh, is that James is going to use this literary technique to actually teach and talk to Christians while he is talking to these non-believing rich people. It's not much different than how the Old Testament prophets spoke many times. The Old Testament prophets would talk about another nation, for instance, and then they'd talk about their sin and their destruction that is coming. But those words were given to Israel, not given to that nation. And again, you can say, well, why would Israel be told something that God is speaking to someone else? 
Well, I think there's a twofold reason. I think there's two reasons that James and the Old Testament prophets would, would talk about and talk to uh, non-believers in order to get a message across to the believers who are reading. And the very first thing I believe we can see is that uh, James opens up and says, as he talks to the rich, he says, you are going to weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. James says in no uncertain words, you need to be destroyed because you are going to be judged by God for your view of your riches. And he is, James is declaring that judgment is coming to the rich, that they will be, they will have to weep and howl that misery is coming upon them, that judgment is coming to the rich. And what should that do for the Christian who would be reading this passage? Well, first of all, it would warn us, it would warn the Christian not to follow their example. Because as we all know, even though we might be following Christ, it's very easy sometimes to get sidetracked, especially by things like money. And I believe by James saying, look, the rich people who have put their love and their trust in money are going to be judged by God. It's a way of saying to Christians, don't be like them. Don't follow in their example. Don't listen to what the world says and what's important, but instead listen to God. And so the first thing is this is a warning. It's a warning to the rich that they're going to be judged, but it's a warning to Christians not to be like the rich. But the other reason I believe James writes this, same reason the Old Testament prophets wrote it, was so that the, the believers who are reading would become hopeful because justice is going to be served. James is reminding the readers, yes, the rich are oppressing people. The rich are destroying people. The rich are putting riches over God and it's very easy, and we can even look back to the Psalms if we had time, where many times you can look at it and the question is, is why are the rich prospering and why am I not? Why are the people who are putting their love and their security and riches, why are they prospering when they shouldn't be? Is God even care? And what James is showing here is, yes, he does care, that God is going to judge the rich. And that should give us hope as Christians to know that those who are putting their hopes and trusts in anything other than God will one day be judged. And we don't need to judge them now because God will judge them in the future. This links with what Justin will most likely be going on to in, ch- in chapter 5, verse 7, where he's, then he, he moves to speak to Christians and he says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, for the coming of the Lord. And I think that connects here. So James is saying the rich will be judged, so be patient, brothers. Know that this world is not the way it is going to be, that Jesus is coming back and evil will be judged and good will be blessed. And that is exactly what James is trying to get across here. That as Christians, we can be patient and we can be hopeful that God is bringing justice while at the same time remembering that we need to not fall into the snare of riches. John Calvin, uh, in talking about all this, this is how he said it in a quote from him. Uh, He says that James has a regard to the faithful that they, hearing the miserable end of the rich, might not envy their fortune, and also that knowing God will be the avenger of the wrongs they suffered, they might with calm and resigned mind bear them. It's exactly what we just talked about. That they would hear the miserable end of the rich, so that they wouldn't envy or they wouldn't want to follow that example, but instead that they would be calm and resigned and, and patient to endure whatever this world calls them to endure, whatever trial they must face. God is bringing justice and it will come when he comes again. And so this is why James writes to the rich. But for the rest of this time that we look at, I want to focus on the first aspect. I think next week we'll probably see more of the second aspect, but on this first aspect, 
of don't follow the example of the rich because they're going to be judged. That is how I want to call us out today as Christians to, to see what the Bible says, what James says about what will happen to the rich so that we will not follow their example. So the first point we're going to look at today is that the rich use their riches for selfish security. And I already mentioned this several times. Selfish security, self-sufficiency, whatever you want to call it, that rich people love and trust their money more than God. And they put their hope in their, their desires. They put their security in the hands of paper money or any other kind of wealth or their possessions. And they store up their possessions because that gives them security. In verses 2 and 3, this is where we see this coming out. In verses 2 and 3, it says, Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have been corroded. And the corrosion will be evidence against you and it will eat your flesh like fire. James is very clear that rich people who put their hope and trust in the security of riches, it's useless. He says, notice that all things are, are worthless. Wealth and possessions are worth nothing because they are being destroyed. Wealth and possessions are worth nothing because they are being destroyed. That's what James says here. Going back to this idea of riches to rags. Well, James uses that very same thought process. He says, your garments are moth-eaten. In other words, they become useless rags. The money, the gold, all the possessions, all your garments, they're nothing. They're, they're fading away. They, and actually, in this passage, it says, your riches have rotted. Notice the way that James uses the verb here. He doesn't say they will rot. In a moment, he's going to look at future judgment of riches. But also, I think he wants to bring us this idea of the present misery that riches bring. All things are worthless, and even gold that we might think is worth a lot, and even gold that we think will last for a very long time, even that is worth nothing in the economy of God. It won't last forever. And so therefore, if it's not going to last, it doesn't mean anything now. The world may say it means something, but it doesn't. It is being uh, judged and rotting right now. You may feel that your wealth, if you're rich and struggling with this, people may feel that their riches are going to put them ahead or bring them happiness, but instead it brings misery in the long term. Maybe short term you might have some fun with some money, but long term it always brings misery. It brings heartache when you trust in money over anything and everything else and when you trust in money over Jesus. Now, real quick, this is not an excuse to use it or lose it. What James is not saying is, look, your stuff is rotting anyway, so you might as well use it while you have it. Just to enjoy your life and spend whatever money you have because it's not going to last. That's not the point. The point here is very simple, that they're trusting in something, trusting in their riches that are completely temporary, that are no good even now. And he brings that out. So their riches are being destroyed even now. Now, many times through the book of James, we've told you that uh, James is calling back the words of Jesus. Uh, and uh, in many of these things that we see here in James, he is just reflecting what Jesus has said in the Gospels, and specifically in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, many of you will know the verses that talk about uh, put, putting your treasure in heaven and not treasure on the earth. Uh, and also in Luke 12, Jesus talks about this. And I want to read the passage in Luke 12 today. I want to read it in its entirety. And Jesus gives a parable about what it looks like to trust in riches and trust in possessions when we shouldn't. 
And so if you join me, uh, we're going to read Luke 12. Uh, we're going to start in verse 13, and we're going to go through 34. We're going to skip some in between. But if you would join me in reading this passage. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge and an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where, there, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus says these words. I don't even need to really... I uh, talk about it too much other than to say that Jesus said, building up barns and storing all your stuff, what good does it do? It doesn't last. It's all going to be destroyed when your life is gone. All of it is gone with you. And so therefore, you need to make sure that you don't trust in the security of riches. And then the other thing to see here about what James says is as he goes on and says, all of your stuff has been destroyed. He says that, all that has corroded will be evidence against you and your flesh and will destroy your flesh like fire. Trusting in riches leads to fiery judgment. This is, this is what James says. This is what Jesus talks about, even talking about how putting treasure in this earth is just going to be burned up. It's not going to last. Not only do we presently lose all our possessions, are they presently not worth anything, but in the future, all that our stuff brings, they'll be burned up. And if we trust in them more than Jesus, we also are burned up ourselves in hell. Fire comes to those, fiery judgment comes to those who trust in their wealth over Jesus. So remember what Jesus said, remember what James says, as we think about how we, the rich use their riches for selfish security, and we need not to follow that example. The second point that we're going to be looking at today is going to be found in, in verse 4. So if you would read that along with me today in chapter 5, verse 4. The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. All right, so in, in verse 4, we see the next point, and that is the rich use their riches for selfish advancement. See, they use their riches for selfish advancement. That's what we see in chapter 4. We just are at verse 4. In, verse, in the verses before, he just got done saying, you have laid up treasures uh, for yourselves in the last days. That, it says that doesn't make any sense. There's judgment because you have stored and, and hoarded your possessions. But now James goes on and says, the rich will use their riches for selfish advancement. A love of riches leads to taking advantage of others. That's what happens here in this passage. It talks about the laborers that have been defrauded by these rich people. Because the love of rich, the love of riches, the people who have put their faith and their hope and their trust in riches will almost always use those riches or use that desire to be rich to use and abuse others. A love of riches leads to taking advantage of others, to use others, to fraud, to, fraud, to cheat, to steal, to hurt others for their own advancement. This is what the rich do. 
And so we need to not follow their example to, to cheat others, to fraud others, to go out of our way to try to cheat the system or to find money that we don't deserve to try to find it in a different way. And so the rich will use it for their selfish advancement. But here's what James tells us. He says, God knows of the abuse and he will bring war on the rich. He knows of the abuse. He will bring war on the rich. Very interesting as he says here, he says, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. What James is saying is here, all the people that have been used and abused and taken advantage of, God knows those people. He's watched it. He's heard it. He knows what's happened. And then he is called the Lord of hosts. Now, you and I might just read this passage and think Lord of hosts. Okay, that's just one of the ways we talk about God. But the phrase Lord of hosts is referring to God's warlike quality. It's referring to the fact that he is the Lord of armies, the commander of the Lord's armies, that he is bringing war. It's the same thing that David said to Goliath when he came, comes against Goliath to fight him. And he says, he says to Goliath, the Lord of hosts is fighting for Israel. The Lord of hosts is fighting for me. And now James uses that same analogy. And that should frighten anyone who is putting their hope in riches. Because what God is saying is, I have heard that you have used and abused others. And therefore, I see it and I will judge it and I am bringing war. You don't want to be on the other end uh, on the other side during God's war. You want to be on his side, his ally, not his enemy. And God says here, I know what you've done and I will come against you. So again, as Christians, we look at this and we think, we don't want to follow the example of the rich. We want to trust in the Lord. We want to be on his side. We want to be in his army and not be against him or fight against him by defrauding others, by using others, by taking others, uh, taking them for our advantage. That's not the way that God has called us to be. And so we need to not live like the rich. This is also an opportunity to remember, again, for Christians who have been beaten down by people who are in bigger, better positions, that there is coming a day where judgment will happen, where justice will be seen. The third point we see here in James is found in verse 5. In verse 5, we read this. It says, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. The next indictment against the rich is that the rich use riches for their selfish indulgence. A love of riches leads to a self-centered lifestyle of pampering. The word here, luxury, means pampering. Uh, Interesting that we think about that. So to indulge oneself is to pamper oneself to the excess. It's not that you can never enjoy good things. God gives us all good things to enjoy. But it's to use those things for our own good and our own pleasure above and against all other things. And that's what the rich person does. They use their gain that they've possessed and all that they've accumulated. They use how they've used others and they use it for their own luxury. They use it for their own pampering. They use it for their own indulgence. Instead of following Jesus with their riches, they follow their riches and do whatever they want and however whatever pleases them. And then God says that'll also be judged because indulging in sin leads to slaughter. The word is slaughter here, and it means slaughter. Intense judgment is coming to those who are so worried about indulging in their own desires and in their own pleasure as a result of having riches. It says that they're fattening themselves up for the day of slaughter. This is the imagery of cattle who are being 
force-fed as much food as possible to get them as fat as they possibly can get so that they can be slaughtered and used for meat, completely destroyed. The rich are being compared to a pig that is ready to be made into bacon. They have been fattened, and now they're ready to be slaughtered. And God says, you will be slaughtered if you trust in your riches so that you are so in, in, enveloped by your own pleasure, by your own indulgence. Again, Christian, we ought not to be like this. In a moment, we're going to see how we should handle our riches, but, doing, but using riches to indulge ourselves is a selfish, sinful way of life. The last point, then, that James makes here in this passage of the rich is that the rich use riches for selfish injustice. Verse 6, You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. James says here that the rich use riches for selfish injustice. A love of riches here is linked to murder. A love of riches is linked to murder. That's the perspective that we need to have. That a love of riches leads us to murder. If we remember the words of Jesus back on the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew 5, 21 through 26, we won't read those, you can look them up. But Jesus says very clearly, that you have heard it is said not to murder, but if you, uh, if you have anger uh, towards your brother, if you are living in hatred of others, that is the same as murder. And so rich people who have made their riches more important than people are really hating people, and therefore they are committing murder. So there's that spiritual sense that they are murdering people, but there's also probably a physical element here. Probably the rich who have been oppressing the poor have literally oppressed them to the point where some have died, where their riches have become such a priority in their life that they don't even care about the fact that the people that have worked for them, the poor people around them are passing away, that are dying, that are, that are leaving this world. They don't care because all they care about is their riches. And so this is a condemnation that is made throughout the scripture. You'll know that the cost of murder is death that the payment for murder is death. And then this last phrase, though, says, he does not resist you. This is referring back to the righteous person. It's referring back to what we would call the innocent person, the person that's been trampled upon. They may not resist the person, the rich person who is trampling them and oppressing them. But here's the implication that we see. The innocent won't resist the rich, but God will. The innocent might not resist the rich, but God will. Back in James 4, 6, we see that God does resist some people. It says God opposes or resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so this is the same idea, that God will resist the rich. God will come against the rich. Judgment will be there for those who put their trust in riches and wealth and possessions. So Christians, let's not follow in their footsteps. So let's talk about a few things of application before we close our time together today. So as Christians, then how do we view money? All the things we've just looked at. Many of us even know intellectually that God will judge people who have trusted money and put their riches above anything and everyone else. The people who have accumulated money that is just temporary. The people that have uh, trampled on others and who have lied to others and have used others. Uh, people who have... Uh, decided uh, that they are going to live in luxury and indulge themselves or people that uh, are going to literally murder others 
for their own advancement and for their own hope, the total injustice, that all that, the, the symptoms of loving money are evil, sinful, and they need to be run away from. As Christians, we are not called to live this life. And we can take some encouragement in knowing that justice will be given one day as Jesus returns. But we also need to take some things to heart for us. And so how do we apply what we've seen today? Well, the first thing I want to say is don't make earthly riches your desire. It only leads to trouble. Don't make earthly riches your desire. It only leads to trouble. That's what the Bible says over and over and over again. If all of this is true that we just looked at, that riches only bring misery and judgment, then why would we make our ultimate desire wealth? To have a good retirement plan, to have uh, the biggest bank account we possibly can have, to have all the possessions that we'd ever want. But yet the American dream, the way that we live in this culture, this is what the culture says we need to want, is to want more and more and more and to live for money and to live for financial gain. But that is only going to lead towards misery and judgment. That is not the road that we are called to travel. Again, this does not mean that we that if you do have means that you are evil or sinful. But it, uh, it, again, it, use, it goes back to how we view that. How do we view our money? Do we use it as a tool to use for the glory of God that we'll look at in a moment? Or do we use it in a way like James is talking about that is going to hurt others for our own indulgence? So in the Bible, there's a couple passages I want to read. One of this first passage is in Proverbs chapter 30. If you've been following our devotionals, that we've been putting out. You know that Pastor Justin talked about this passage just a few days ago last in the, this last week. And I want to read this passage again about what we should be seeking as when it comes to riches. Proverbs 30, 8 through 9 says this. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. The author here is very clear on what his desire was. And I believe this should be our desire, that we pray that we aren't in total poverty because we don't want to have to feel like we need to steal or break the law because we are such so impoverished. But even more, we look at this, it says, give me neither poverty nor riches. He says, don't let me have riches lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? This is what these rich people are doing. They are full and so they are denying God. They are atheists because their God is money. And so, the, so the, 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 the writer here in Proverbs says very clearly, make sure that I am not rich so that I don't forget the Lord. And so we need to pray for what we need, not to pray that we will get more and more and more and more. And that is true in Proverbs chapter 30. That is wisdom. But also in the New Testament, we see 1 Timothy 6 talks about this idea of wisdom and wealth. And the love of money and how that needs to be shunned if we're to be a Christian who is following Jesus the best we can. So if you join me in reading in 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through that craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. First Timothy 6 is very clear. First Timothy 6 is very clear. It says you cannot make earthly riches your ultimate desire because it will lead to trouble. It will lead to sin. It will lead to senseless and harmful things. 
It'll, it'll lead to all kinds of evil. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It'll pierce you. These are very pointed words here. We've brought nothing into the world. We're going to bring nothing out. Therefore, we trust what God has given us, and we don't live a life that is running on the treadmill of life trying to make more and more and more when it comes to possessions and wealth. It's only going to end in this anxiety and distress that Timothy uh, is told about here as Paul talks to him. And so it's very clear through Scripture there is a warning given even to Christians not to make riches and wealth our ultimate desire. And we know our ultimate desire needs to be Jesus. But again, as I said before, being wealthy in and of itself is, is not a sin. In and of itself, it's not a sin to be wealthy, but how you use it and how you view it can lead to sin. And so with that being said, I want to say this next statement as we think about application. So don't make earthly riches your desire. It only leads to trouble. But if you are rich, and I'll use these, I use the quotes in rich, if you have means, if you are wealthy, if you know that you have more than you need, how then should you respond? You need to use your wealth for God's glory. So if you are rich, use your wealth for God's glory. Later on in 1 Timothy chapter 6, as Paul continues to talk about wealth, this is what he says to those who have means, who are wealthy in this age. So read with me 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who provides richly, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of which is really is truly life. First Timothy six, seventeen through nineteen says, Okay, so if you do have means, how do you use it? Well you need to use it for God's glory. Not first of all, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. That's what we've been talking about. Our hope doesn't come from what we have. Our hope comes from who we know. And so as Christians, we need to make sure that we're not pursuing riches as our hope because they are it's uncertain. It'll fade away. But God richly provides us with everything that we have to enjoy. So as someone who is enjoying God's riches and what he's given you, do good, be rich in good works, be generous, give to others, be ready to share to others who don't aren't as in good of a place as you are. Instead of trampling upon the poor, give to the poor. And store up for your treasure that actually matters. Store up treasure in this world that actually matters. Not money, but doing good for the glory of God. That is what Paul says is truly life. False life is trusting in money. True life is trusting in Jesus. If you want some more ideas on how it is that you can use money well and in a godly way, um, last Friday's devotion I gave on financial hardship Go back and watch that if you haven't, because I give lots of different principles that we can use as we handle money and how we can do that in a godly way. I'm not going to take the time today to do that, but look back on that devotional, if you will, if you'd like a few more thoughts on how we can use our riches in a way that honors God. But then again, I will, and in that devotion, I use this passage that I'm going to close with, and that's in Hebrews 13. And in this passage, I believe it says everything we need to know about how we relate to money versus how we relate to Jesus. And so can we look at that for a moment? Because what we're going to see is that the opposite of loving money, the opposite of loving money that fades away, that won't last, is to trust in Jesus who is always with us. And that's what we find in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 through 6. 
Here we read this. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is the encouragement that we're given in the book of Hebrews that throughout all of scripture, James talks about what it means to that rich people who trust in the, and love money are going to be destroyed and judged. So what does Hebrews say? It says, keep your life free from the love of money. Don't be enslaved by the love of money. As we've already seen, it'll only lead to misery, but be content with what you have. Be, be thankful for what God has already given you. And remember that God has said that Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you that he is our helper. We don't need to fear and man cannot do anything to us. And so how do we relate to our riches is that we don't love our riches, but we love Jesus. That we don't trust in riches, but we trust Jesus. And so I want to take this opportunity real quickly for those who are watching that might not know Jesus. And you're in this rat race of life where you're constantly trying to gain more and gain more and gain more and hoping it'll give you security and hope. Uh, the coronavirus, when people have lost their jobs, maybe you've lost your job and you no longer have that money to trust in. And you're looking for someone, something to trust in because money has left you behind. Jesus is the one who will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus is the one who, although money might be fleeting and it's only temporary, Jesus is forever. He will always be with you. And so Jesus, he lived the perfect life for you that you couldn't live. He died a death on the cross to forgive you for your sins. If you will trust in him, if you will turn to him in repentance and love him and believe in him and give your life to Jesus and ask him to transform you and trust in him for everything in life, not trust in money or possessions or anything else, but only trust in Jesus and the fact that he died so that you could have forgiveness and then he rose again so that you could have new life. That is true hope, that we can look back and know that Jesus shed his blood for us, that he died on the cross to take the penalty for our sin when we've turned our backs on him, when we've trusted anything and everything but him. That is sin. But Jesus died for that so that you could be saved, so that you could be forgiven. And then he rose again, defeating sin and death and giving ultimate hope so that we can trust in him and have new life in him, a life that doesn't revolve around riches or possessions, or what this world has to offer, but a life that revolves around Jesus. So that is something that we need to remember as we think about Hebrews 13 this, this day. I want to end with one quote that I came across that I hope will, I'll leave it with you, something to ponder on, um, and then I'm going to close in prayer. Uh, before I even do that, again, as I just mentioned, if you haven't accepted Jesus as your Savior, in a sense of you have not started a relationship with Him and put your trust in Jesus... Make today the day you do that. Uh, contact somebody you know who knows Jesus, and they will love to tell you how you can know Jesus more. Uh, or you can contact us at the church, and we will love to give you more information and, and help you in the journey of knowing Jesus and trusting in Him over everything else. So please reach out if that is you. But as I close, I want to end with this quote, and it's the opposite of what the world says. The world says that wealth is an advantage in life. But what the Bible says, what James says, what Jesus says, what Hebrews says, what all of the scripture says is that actually wealth is not an advantage. And this is a, a quote from Kent Hughes. And what he says is this, wealth is not an advantage, but rather it's a spiritual handicap. Wealth is not an advantage, but rather it's a spiritual handicap. Again, not that it's sin or always wrong to have wealth, but it makes life that much tougher to trust in Jesus over riches. So don't look at wealth as how you can get more, but think of it as 
how you can give to others, how you can trust Jesus above all else. Now let us close in prayer this today. Lord, I want to thank you for the reminder that riches are not what we can trust in, that you are going to judge those people who have put riches and other things in front of you and that they aren't trusting you. And even if we feel that we have been downtrodden by them, that we have been oppressed by others, that justice is on its way, that you are coming again to bring ultimate and good justice. But Lord, also I pray that we wouldn't follow in the footsteps and the example of those who have put money uh, as their ultimate trust, that have loved money more than you. Help us to love you above anything and everything else. Help us to trust you over anything and everything else, including money, possessions, and everything that we have in this world. It's all fading. It's all fleeting. So Lord, help us trust in you who will last forever. Help us look to you. We thank you that you are always with us and you never leave us and that we can trust you during these days. Help us to do that. Give us the grace to trust you each day. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a blessed day.